All right, guys, welcome to part two of this Vetfolio podcast series, sponsored in part by DECRA, where we're discussing Cushing's disease with Dr. Audrey Cook. In the last episode, we talked about getting to a diagnosis of Cushing's and how sometimes that requires multiple tests. In this episode, we'll be discussing the real challenge, how to communicate with owners about Cushing's disease and keep them from getting frustrated when getting to a diagnosis is less than straightforward. I took away some great pointers from this podcast, and I hope you do too. But first of all, a little bit about my guest. Dr. Cook is an associate professor of small animal internal medicine at Texas A&M. She obtained her veterinary degree at the University of Edinburgh in 1989. Dr. Cook completed an internship in small animal medicine and surgery at North Carolina State University before starting her residency in small animal internal med at UC Davis. She achieved board certification with the American College of Veterinary Internal Med in 1994 and with the European College in 1996. More recently, she became board certified in feline practice in 2013 and completed a post-grad certificate in veterinary education through the Royal Veterinary College in London. Dr. Cook owned a referral practice in Virginia for 10 years before joining the Texas A&M University faculty in 2007. She's currently co-chief of the medicine section, where her professional interests include endoscopy, endocrinology, gastroenterology, and interventional radiology. All right, let's get into our talk about communicating with clients about Cushing's disease. We're back again with Dr. Cook discussing Cushing's disease and how to communicate with owners about it. So this can be a really tough one for owners to wrap their head around. Dr. Cook, can you give us some perspective on why you think this can be so challenging? That's a great question. I think there's lots of reasons why this can be a complicated conversation to have with an owner. I think Cushing's is a relatively confusing condition. And I think a lot of vets aren't 100% comfortable with it. And potentially some of that uncertainty translates across in those conversations with clients. I think I've had conversations with clients too, where I am sure their dog has Cushing's and I feel very strongly that I can make the dog happier and improve the dog's quality of life and the owner's quality of life. But the owner kind of pushes back and says things like, well, old dogs always drink more. And my last dog panted a lot. And I had a dog as a kid who lost all of his hair. And so sometimes they're kind of pushing me back and they're trying to attribute what I think are signs of Cushing's simply the signs of aging. And so I have to be sensitive to where they're coming from as far as their perspective. The other thing I think is difficult is you can talk a client into doing a workup for something and then I get a test result that maybe I don't have full competence in. So I may have encouraged a workup and I've had the dog in for a low-dose dex suppression test and I get the result back and it's not consistent with hyperadrenocorticism, but I am sure the dog has Cushing's and so I want to go ahead and do another test. Well, I've talked the client into test one, and then I'm telling them on the phone, I don't believe test one. I want to do test two. And so I think that can make clients get frustrated and and disengage. I do think we've got to have them achieve good buy-in before we really start. And so we need to explain enough that they're on board and that they believe we're going to make a difference. I I think for me, that's often the point is if I can illustrate to them that we're going to make a positive difference then often I can get enough buy-in to move things forward. But express ahead of time, this might be a bit of a take a left, take a right kind of a journey before we figure out if your dog has this condition. But I think we'll be glad that we did it. Absolutely. It can be really tough to prepare owners when we start down this road because it can be a long road. So let's start by getting your thoughts on how do you explain Cushing's disease to an owner? I do try and hang it onto 
something that they've shared with me and, and often dogs with Cushing's have come in because of polyuria polydipsia and that's very frustrating for an owner anybody who's got up at two in the morning on a regular basis to let their dog out or come home from a 10-hour day at work and found a puddle of urine by the back door those things very quickly impact quality of life for owner and the whole atmosphere in the household can become fairly sad and so I will hold on to whatever they've shared with me. So I'll hold on tight to, I think this thirst is being driven by this disease. And I think if I can identify it and turn it around, your dog is not going to get up in the night and it's not going to have accidents in the house. So I will hold tight to something that the owner has shared. I really try and keep things relatively straightforward. I say we have this hormone called cortisol. We need just the right amount, not enough and you're sick, too much, and you have all kinds of problems such as we're seeing with Fluffy. And so I mentioned the word cortisol. I keep it relatively straightforward. I really don't go into much detail about underlying pathology of Cushing's at that point. And what I'll try and do when I suspect Cushing's is have the owner okay, some kind of basic blood work, so a general health screen to see if we're heading in the right direction and to make sure that there's not something else that I haven't considered that could be causing those clinical signs. So assuming those routine labs, the general health screen supports your suspicion of hyperadrenocorticism, then how do you broach the subject with them about adrenal testing? So the next thing I'll do is say, I think we're heading in the right direction and all signs are pointing towards hyperadrenocorticism. But before we can treat, we have to be confident that this is the case. And so we have to confirm this. I will say that the tests aren't perfect. And sometimes we have to do a couple of different tests before we get enough evidence to go ahead and treat. Like solving a crime, I'm going to interview the routine suspects and then I'm going to have to do a bit of digging. And sometimes it's very, very easy to solve the crime and get the diagnosis confirmed. Sometimes it takes us a little bit longer than we'd like just to kind of set the scene. I do tell clients that there's basically two reasons why dogs can have hyperadrenocorticism and we'll at some point have to probably figure out which subtype we have. But I don't take it any further than that at this point because most dogs have pituitary dependent disease. And I must admit, I don't like mentioning the word adrenal tumor unless I have really good reasons to use words like tumor in an exam room with an owner. So you mentioned earlier that the testing is not perfect and take a right, take a left. What do you say to an owner who's reluctant to go further at this stage? That is a great question because certainly I can get some pushback. If the owner had attributed many of the changes that I'm attributing to Cushing's to simple old age, then it might take a little time to get the buy-in that we need. And so recognizing that most dogs, easily 85% of dogs have underlying pituitary dependent disease. Generally speaking, I don't think it's an emergency to diagnose Cushing's particularly if it's a very small dog, like a miniature dachshund or, or a, a small poodle or a Boston Terrier, I am really convinced that dog is going to have underlying pituitary dependent disease. And it's really not an emergency. I think the dog probably didn't feel great with Cushing's, but this is usually not an emergent condition. And so I think it's okay to plant the seed and then give the owner something to think about. And then maybe schedule a recheck for about three months and ask the client as they're leaving on this visit some very specific questions about thirst and urination and getting up in the nighttime and then revisit those issues at that three-month recheck. Because sometimes when you plant the seed about how much is he drinking, how is he, is he hungrier, is he coming for a walk with enthusiasm, when you see them back in three months, Cushing's gets easier to diagnose as time goes by. And often then clients will say, yeah, we are filling the water bowl a lot more than we used to. And um, my husband says he has come home a couple of times to a wet spot by the back door. And so by planting the seed and then revisiting, I think often clients then can understand where your concerns were coming from. 
I would say that I am much more concerned if it's a big dog who's manifesting signs of hyperadrenocorticism because once a dog is over 20 kilos, that rule of thumb about 85% have pituitary-dependent disease, that rule of thumb don't work anymore. The bigger the dog gets, the more likely it is that it's about a 50-50 shot that the dog has an adrenal tumor. And if it's a German Shepherd, I'm really worried that it has an underlying adrenal tumor. And so more than 20 kilos, so more than about, about 45 pounds or so, I get really anxious that could be an underlying adrenal tumor. And half of those are malignant and they're nasty malignant. And so time then is of the essence. And so a big dog, I tend to be a little bit more anxious and I tend to try and convey to an owner that I'd really like us to answer some of these questions because it could be that we're, we're losing time and we might regret a delay in making a diagnosis. Absolutely. And we'll be discussing some of the adrenal testing and how to distinguish those in another podcast. But we've all been there where your first test comes back inconclusive and now you have to keep testing. How do you explain the need to do a second adrenal test when the first test is inconclusive? I think it can be very frustrating. And I can certainly understand when owners kind of are starting to disengage and lose comfort in what's going on. I think expressing the fact that you understand is frustrating. I think that that really helps. I also think setting them up for this ahead of time can be helpful. So I do always warn people when I start testing for Cushing's, tests aren't great. Sadly, they're not perfect tests. Sometimes we have to do a couple, hopefully not, but at least I've mentioned it once. And so if I do have to call back and say, first test didn't support my theory, can you bring him back for a second test? Then at least the client had a little bit of a heads up about it. And I think I get better acceptance if I've warned them ahead of time that that may help. But I think making sure clients understand that this is a journey we're on together and that I believe I can make quality of life better for all parties if we can answer this question. I think that's the real key. They've got to feel that there's a reason for all this. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. So bingo, we run the test. It's supportive of Cushing's. Where do we go from there? So if we did a low-dose sex suppression test, then we may have been lucky and we may have already managed to differentiate pituitary-dependent disease from an adrenal tumor. If we didn't do a low-dose sex suppression test or our low-dose sex suppression test didn't manage to differentiate PDH from adrenal tumor, then I'm going to have to sit with the owner and say, okay, there are two reasons why dogs have hyperadrenocorticism. Most of them, it's sitting up in the pituitary. We don't tend to take action about it, but a small number, the disease is coming from a tumor in the adrenal gland. And if that's the case, then we would recommend removing the affected adrenal gland. I really want to get a feel from the owner, though, about how interested they are in surgery if we did find an adrenal tumor. And so I'm going to think about comorbid conditions. If, if this is a, a very old patient with, say, substantial cardiac disease or some pre-existing renal disease, I'm not really going to be all that enthusiastic about recommending adrenalectomy. I don't want to make the decision for the client, but I'm going to share those concerns with them. And then the other thing I'm going to have to factor in is adrenalectomies Generally speaking, it's a, most of us would regard that as a referral surgery. And so we are looking, depending on where you are um, across the USA, from maybe four to $5,000 to maybe closer to $10,000. And it's a big surgery. If my expectations are that the client is not going to be able to, to come up with the resources to, to move forward with an adrenalectomy, then again, that would slow me down from the need to differentiate the two. Having said that, though, I I am very aware that I am not a good judge of my client's financial resources. So I'm just very honest with them about if we find an adrenal tumor, we're looking at, in my state, five to $6,000 for surgery. Tell me where you sit with this, because if this is not for you, then we don't need to spend more resources answering a question that's not going to change our plan. 
So thank goodness, most of them have pituitary dependent disease, in which case we would start trilostane. So when you're talking to owners about trilostane, what kind of things do you tell them? I do think it's important to keep things relatively simple and then make sure that the key points are understood. And so first, lifelong therapy. So we are not fixing the underlying problem. It's not like taking antibiotics because you've got a bladder infection. This is more like taking insulin when you're a diabetic or taking thyroid hormone when you're hypothyroid. This is a drug that is needed long-term to control the clinical signs. So they do need to understand that it's lifelong. We're not fixing the underlying disease. We are making the patient more normal. I will get a sense from my clients about their feelings about once daily or twice daily administration. There's lots of uh, schools of thought about optimal ways to start trilostane and dosing plans. Personally, I do very well. My my own dog is on once a day medication and I do horribly when he's on twice a day medication. I always have lots of pills left that I shouldn't have left. And so I'll get a sense from the owner about their schedule and who's going to be medicating and try and make sure that it says as easy for them to incorporate this into their routine as they can. I also want clients to understand that again, unlike being given an antibiotic for your bladder infection, where we can do a dose calculation and say, this dose is the dose that's going to work. That's not the case for trilostane. We have good guidelines for what's a smart dose to start with, but we have to find the dose that fits the patient. Most of my patients kind of sort of end up on roughly the same doses, but there's a pretty wide band where they sit. But I have Labradors who are on very small doses and Chihuahuas who are on much, much, much bigger doses. And so I have learned to say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start with my best guess. We may have to up the dose. We may have to drop the dose. And that is going to require that we communicate and that we get you and your dog back in for a regular recheck. So make sure that we are actually on track. I also want them to understand that the drug is actually relatively safe. There's lots of concern in anybody who's ever experienced a dog who was on mitotane because that drug um, had some complications and was in of itself a bit of a scary drug to handle. Whereas trilostane, certainly from my perspective, is a much easier drug to work with. The major issue is if we drop cortisol too fast and too far, you'll feel a little bit blah. We skip a dose or two and you're right back to where you were. I also do tell clients ahead of time, though, about the the rare event of complete adrenal necrosis, where we get patients who've been on trilostane sometimes for two weeks, sometimes for two months, sometimes for two years, and they get necrosis of their adrenal glands and they do become Addisonian. I just tell clients that it's very easy for us to recognize that. They just need to call us if their dog isn't well, and then it's very, very easy to manage. Sure, sure. And what about a consideration that, of course, many owners have, and that's the cost of therapy? How do you talk to them about that? That's a great question, too. I do think that it can be very hard for us to make good assessments on our clients' financial resources. And so I think it's important to be upfront with them about roughly what costs we're looking at can be a little bit difficult as we can't predict what dose a patient's going to need long-term. But I think giving people information ahead of time lets them make smart decisions. I'll often use my easy analogy is it's usually less than the cost of a latte for most dogs because most of us will um, we'll pop into a coffee shop every now and again or every day and get ourselves some frou-frou coffee drink. And that's just part of our daily expenses. And I think relating their dog's medical costs back to something that seems manageable can sometimes be very, very helpful. I also emphasize that we expect to see improvement relatively quickly, um, but not overnight. And so most dogs on their first visit back at about 10 to 14 days, we're seeing a shift and clients are saying things like, I think he's a bit better and um, I'm not filling the water bowl so much and the panting is easing off, but make sure they understand it's going to take maybe a few months before they're back to normal. So we've set very realistic expectations. Another thing I think is very helpful is to have the whole team, so technicians and receptionists, 
have a very positive attitude about treating dogs for Cushing's and they make sure that they're all trained to talk very comfortably about costs. I think it's, I had a practice of my own for a long time and I, I made sure that my, my staff are very, very on board with this idea because it's terribly easy for somebody who's checking out a client and recognizing that a capsule costs, I'm picking a number, $3 a capsule and to say, gosh, these are expensive capsules. Well, that is a very unhelpful thing to say and has negated a client's perception of value. And yes, a prednisone pill is, is two cents. A trilostane capsule may be considerably more, but we shouldn't talk in terms of what the actual drug costs us. We need to focus in terms of what benefits we're going to see. And so I do think making sure the whole team is on board and is trained to say things like, I'm looking forward to seeing how he does. We've got lots of drugs, lots of dogs on this drug, and it's really fun to see them getting better. Those are things that clients need to hear. Absolutely. Like anything, just having a team approach and having everybody on board. You mentioned a little bit earlier about adrenal necrosis. Um, So I know this is very uncommon, but owners may get on the internet and read about adrenal necrosis. How do you answer them when they have concerns about that? I think it's um, it's great when clients educate themselves, and I, I'm glad that they've heard of the syndrome because that makes it easier sometimes to, to make sure that everybody's well informed. And so what I say is a small number of dogs will suffer adrenal necrosis, and the reasons for it are, are complicated and it doesn't really matter. But what happens essentially is we have done a 180, and so um, Cushing's is way too much cortisol. When you get adrenal necrosis, then you've not got any cortisol, and that's probably going to be a permanent condition. It could be transient, but most likely it's going to be permanent. The good news is once this starts, it doesn't happen overnight. And so the dogs I've known who've had adrenal necrosis, they've had a day of like, I don't feel very well. I don't feel great. I'm slow to eat. The next day, I didn't want to eat uh, day two. Day three, maybe I had a bit of a tummy upset. Softest stool, maybe I vomited. Day four, mom brings the dog in. And then we can recognize the dog has um, hypoadrenal corticism. We can confirm the diagnosis and we can start treatment. It's not a situation in which a dog eats a hearty dinner, plays frisbee, and then is found dead in his bed in the morning. This is something that once it starts, you have days in which to get medical care. And so as long as clients understand lines of communication are open, if they're worried about how their dog is doing, stop the trilostane. We'll get him in for a recheck quickly and see what's going on. It really should not be something that is a huge worry for clients. I also tell them that making a dog Addisonian is not the end of the world. And and for many clients, it's easier and often it's less expensive to have an Addisonian dog than to have a Cushingoid dog. And so for me, we've just swapped one kind of fun endocrine disease for actually a really cool, less expensive, very manageable endocrine disease. And it is nothing to be sad about. So I actually have a uh, a pretty positive attitude if adrenal necrosis occurs. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Addison's is generally easier to manage than Cushing's. So Dr. Cook, this is why I love doing these interviews. I feel like I pick up so many little tidbits along the way that just help me in day-to-day practice. And this is no different. You've given us so much insight on how to communicate with owners about this disease process, which really can be very confusing at times. Are there any final thoughts you'd like to share with us? A couple. I do think it's helpful to um, provide owners with written instructions when we first start treating with trilostane so that it's very clear about what to watch for, when to come back, what time of day to give the medications, to give the medications the day of the recheck. So I think written instructions are priceless because studies have shown that clients actually recall about 20% of what they hear in the exam room. So I think making sure that clients get some written instructions at the start is really, really helpful. I also think though generally when we're starting the conversation about Cushing's, it's really important that we don't overwhelm owners with too much information. They need to see the big picture and they need to be part of the decision-making process. 
but they often aren't interested in too much detail. And I know how I feel. I take my car into the shop. I want to know how long it will take, what it's going to cost me, and what will happen if I do nothing. Those are kind of the issues that I'm needing to have resolved. I do not want a long and confusing explanation about what's wrong with the car, as I often can't understand, I can't follow. And then my natural instinct is to go ahead and disengage. So I think we shouldn't patronize our clients, but we also have to recognize that they haven't heard the word adrenal before, and this is all new and it can rapidly become confusing. So I think avoid the jargon and keep things simple and make sure that they understand that we've got a really good reason for starting this conversation. We're going to make their dog a lot happier and the quality of life for the dog and the family tremendously better. Thank you, Dr. Cook, for all of these great takeaways on Cushing's disease, and thank you to DECRA for sponsoring this event. If you'd like to find out more about this and other podcasts, click on the Education tab on Vetfolio's portal. As always, we'd love to hear your input on this session, as well as ideas for topics you'd like to hear from us in the future. Please feel free to reach out to me at dvm at vetfolio.com. You can also visit my Facebook page at Dr. Cassie DVM, and you can find me on LinkedIn. And remember, if one animal is better off because of you today, it's a great day.